Will you please this morning turn with me once again to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are coming to now the end of 1 Peter chapter 2. We've been in it uh, a rather long time now, several months if you include Christmas uh, over the course of time we've been here. Page 1015 in the Blue Bibles, it probably opens right there to that section, or your own Bible perhaps does, or of course the passage is also today uh, printed in your bulletins for you. I'm going to read verses 18 through 25 for us. It's the exact same passage that I read for uh, our sermon text last week. And if you'll recall, last week I focused the preaching on the first three verses of that, 18, 19, and uh, 20. This week we'll focus on the second part of that, verses 21 through 25. As I read it for us, that section that I'm focusing on today, 21 to 25, is not a normal part of the household code. Uh, The household code is a structure for this section of scripture, a way that we understand uh, a structure. But this is not a normal part of it. It is unexpected, and it is unexpectedly glorious. It is not in any way parenthetical. Everything, everything that Peter is saying flows from this spring of life in this section right here. That our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be the suffering servant of whom we read earlier in Isaiah. So here, this portion of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and living word for his people. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Follow in his steps. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Help us to do two things this morning. Help us to hear your word. Help us to hear it in our hearts in a way that we understand it, that we grasp what you are saying to us here. And then help us to appropriate these words in our lives. These words are for living. And we pray that you would help us to be a people who do exactly that. We pray this in your name. Amen. With this passage, 
with this second part of what I read for us today. We have arrived at the very heart of this letter, and really not only just the heart of this letter, but the heart of our faith and the heart of our living as a follower of Jesus Christ. This right here that we've got before us is the pivot point. Every, every single exhortation that Peter has given to us up to this point, every exhortation that exists in the section in which we find ourselves right now, every exhortation that will follow in this book, every encouragement he has provided is anchored right here. It's rooted right here. Or if you want to look at it a different way, it emanates from this place, from this text. This is the place from which everything else grows, from which everything else proceeds, from the suffering of Christ for you. Everything flows from that. Your life flows from the suffering of Christ for you. We are being called by our Lord, through this word, to an extraordinary life. A life that, as one writer puts it, fully cuts against the grain of commonly held views of suffering and our sensibilities of fairness and self-protection. Let me just explain that. Fully cuts against the grain of commonly held views of suffering. Why? How does this cut against the commonly held views of suffering? Because the age-old expectation is this. Sin, doing what is wrong, leads to suffering. It leads to punishment. And righteousness, or doing what is good, leads to good ends. It leads to reward. And therefore, those who suffer, by definition, aren't the ones who have done good, aren't the ones who are righteous. Those who suffer are the ones who have done that which is wrong. And those who are righteous, therefore, also implication of that, are not the ones who go through suffering. And this passage takes that and turns it upside down. It turns it upside down because it says, Jesus committed no sin. He was righteous, he was holy, he was perfect in all of his ways. He committed no sin, and yet he suffered injustice. Now, it cuts across, in addition, the second part of that quote. It cuts across our sense of fairness and self-protection because it tells us to endure suffering for doing good without, without taking retaliation, without taking it into your heart, without taking it onto your lips, without taking it into your hands. And that cuts across all of our sense of fairness. Remember this. We talked a little bit about this in prayer last week. Remember this. Peter, this same Peter who wrote this passage before us this morning, Peter vehemently vehemently opposed the idea of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 16, Peter makes the great declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then, 
And then we read this. In light of that declaration, Jesus responds to this by saying, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So they've declared you're the Christ. Jesus says, I need them to understand who I am as the Christ. And so he begins this ministry of explanation of his upcoming impending suffering. And Peter, this is quoting now, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now that's a bad idea. Right? It's, a bad, it's always a bad idea to rebuke Jesus. Peter began and took him aside to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. No way. No way. Suffering may happen to other people. It may belong to other people. You're the righteous one. You're the Messiah. I just declared it albeit by God, by the revelation of God. I just declared, you're the Son of God. You're the Christ. No suffering for you. I won't allow it. What a difference. What a difference between that Peter and this Peter. This Peter writing to us, exhorting us in this passage. Because here, Peter finds the only hope. The only hope for our salvation, the only hope for our lives to be in the suffering of Jesus. Peter says, I have to explain everything to you, and I get it. I get it. I was one who with you thought that suffering shouldn't be part of his life or even part of our lives. But now I've got to explain it to you. He told me. He rebuked me. I rebuked him. He rebuked me. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me with this idea that suffering isn't part of the Messiah's lot. That was how Jesus responded to him. And so Peter now has to talk about the suffering of Jesus. And more than that, it's not just the suffering of Jesus, but Peter continues on where exactly Matthew continued on, if we were to read further, because in Matthew, the next thing that comes up after Jesus rebukes Peter is Peter, is Jesus, excuse me, talks about the cost of discipleship by saying, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. And now Peter is saying, in the same way that the Son of God had to take up a cross, you are going to have to take up your cross and follow after him. Peter understands it. Peter gets now what Jesus was trying to explain to him then. The calling right now is to suffer like him, while the calling ultimately is unto glory with him. Right now, suffer like him. Ultimately, glory with him. That's the pattern. Well, let's remember the setting of our particular text. We're in a section that is describing for us honorable conduct in the world. We are in the form of the household codes. We are in the section specifically within the household codes that is addressing slaves who find themselves to be in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. And Peter has given to them impossible exhortations in an impossibly harsh reality. And 
Peter anticipates. Peter, if you will, hears the thoughts of those who would have read his words or those who would have heard his words read to them. And the thoughts are what I called the subtitle of last week's sermon. Do you remember the subtitle of last week's sermon? I didn't write it down. I just said it real quickly at the beginning. The title of last week's sermon was from the text, A Gracious Thing. It's repeated twice in the text, A Gracious Thing. Remember the subtitle? You can't be serious. That was the subtitle last week. And that's what, if, what, that's what we would say to this kind of advice. You can't be serious right now. And Peter anticipates it. And he speaks to that reaction. He speaks to that voice inside of us. He speaks to the incredulity with which we would look at the exhortations, the commands that he's giving to us because they cut against all of our sensibilities. Now, let's be clear about something. Surely, this applies to slaves, right? I've just said, that's the specific section in which we find ourselves. Peter is addressing slaves. But, I think textually and intuitively, all of you know this applies to all of us. I hope. I hope everybody understands that we're talking about us right here. Indeed, it would have been applied to slaves. But textually, I also can say that this is clearly applying to all of us. And I just want to point this out because I don't want any of us to kind of miss this and set this aside as if this belonged uniquely to someone else in some other setting. So textually, there are several clues about this broad application of this. First of all is one that I mentioned last week, that we have the use of the idea of slaves and servants here. And though we didn't read this right up in verse 16, he has just called all of us to a life as slaves of God, as servants of God. So he's got a particular application to be sure, but all of us have this same kind of identity because, as again, as I said last week, our Lord Jesus Christ took this form. He took the form of a servant, and we follow in his steps. Secondly, the positioning of this section right here shows it to be, as I've called it, the central point or the pivot point, applying to all of the things that come from it. So to everything that came before it, to everything that came after it, this is it. This is the the pivot point. This is the anchor point from which everything else flows. Third, there's a pronoun shift that takes place. You may have noticed it. It takes place in verse 24. Peter has been saying, you, Christ, died for you. But when he gets to verse 24, he switches from the second person plural, you, to the first person plural, our, or we. It gets personal for him. Fourth, the theology itself is clearly for all believers. And fifth, essentially these same exhortations continue throughout the letter, and as they continue throughout the letter, they are very specifically applied to all in chapters 3 and 4 as we move along. So, this is for all of us. Particularly, slaves can apply this in their difficult settings, but it is for all of us. Slave, free, Jew, Gentile, citizen, governor, husband, wife, children, elders, or apostle, It's for every single one of us. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. That is for every single Christian. Christ didn't suffer so that you now don't have to suffer. That could make sense, right? 
Well, he suffered, now I don't have to suffer. Now, that's finally true. That's finally true at the day of visitation at his return, that we won't suffer, that all of the sorrows and all of the groanings and all of the tears, all of those things will be put behind us at that point, at the day of his return. But it's not presently true. Presently, to suffering, you have been called. To suffering. And Peter gives two just wonderfully vivid pictures that are found really uniquely here in this letter and in verse 21 for us. And uh, whether you're young or old children, you can hear these two illustrations that Peter gives because he wants us all to understand this. The first illustration is the use of the idea when he says, leaving you an example. And you've probably heard this before. If you have, great, rejoice in it delight in it. The idea here of leaving you as an example is a grammar school idea. The example that he's giving to us is of a writing tablet and of children who are learning how to write being given a copy of the letters and being told, trace those letters. They just learn how to write by tracing the letters that are printed on this tablet and get your hand in the process of tracing them out. That's leaving you an example. Jesus has given to us a tablet. The tablet is his life. Write the letters, copy the letters of your life on top of my life. That's it. The second is to follow in his steps. Now, we know that there are plenty of commands found in Scripture from Jesus himself. Peter received them himself to follow him. Here, though, the idea is even a little bit more uh, specific. So you can think of uh, walking in the sand or you can think of walking in the snow. The idea here is of imprints that are left as we walk in sand or snow or something that is soft. And, And what Peter is saying is Jesus has left those imprints of his life in this world, these steps, step in the steps. Put your foot right here. This is where my foot was. You take your foot, you put your foot there, you put the next one where the next imprint is found. So that's the guiding principle. That's, that's what Peter's saying. That's the exhortation. You follow after him, you write upon the tablet that he's given you, and you're following after the example of his life. And then Peter explains, okay, this is exactly what those steps were. He's going to give us because obviously he's not talking literally, right? Obviously this isn't a call to go to Jerusalem and actually walk in the steps that Jesus walked in. The idea here is look at what Jesus has done for you and apply that to yourselves. And to do the explanation, he uses Isaiah 53. When Peter was rebuking Jesus back in Matthew chapter 16, there's no way he understood Isaiah 53. There's no way he could have explained to you how Isaiah 53 maps onto the life of Christ or how the life of Christ connects in any way with Isaiah 53. That was beyond his comprehension at that time, but the cross changed that. The cross becomes the interpretive key to the Old Testament to unlock its meaning. 
So, so Peter could have looked before at the prophets, tried to make sense of what the prophets said about the coming of the Christ, but he can't make sense of it until the cross comes in and all of a sudden the stuff that's written in Isaiah 53, in Psalm 22 that was our call to worship, all of a sudden it comes clear. Wait, 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 wait. Now I understand. That's what Peter is describing. That's what he's exemplifying here in what he does. He has been using the Old Testament to explain literally every point of this letter so far. Many times I've taken us back to it. Sometimes I haven't because it happens all the time. And he tipped us off that this section was coming. He told us that this section was coming. This section on Isaiah 53 was coming. In chapter 1, verse 10, he wrote this. Concerning this salvation, this great salvation of which we've been speaking, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So the prophets are looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, the salvation that, would Messiah, that the Messiah would bring, and they searched carefully, they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The prophets are going, there's a time of salvation coming. There's suffering that's a part of that. There's a person in whom that will be all tied together and, and wrapped together. And so the prophets are searching diligently for that. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What Peter is saying is, listen, for them it was dim. And Peter could say, listen, for me it was dim. When I was with Jesus, for me it was dim. But it was revealed to them that what they were doing was in fact for you. It was for you, so that right now, you and I can look back. And we can look back through 1 Peter, to the life of Jesus Christ, to Isaiah 53, and we can be encouraged. Angels would love to do that. They would love to look into and see this love that has been demonstrated through the suffering of the eternal Son of God on behalf of the people whom he loves. Rob preached on that section for us, however many months ago it was now. And if I recall it correctly, Rob, you can correct me. I didn't look it up. Isaiah 53 was your Old Testament text, wasn't it, for that passage? I think it was. It's anticipation. Peter tipped us off. He said, this is coming. But this is the section. This is the section where Peter does exactly what he says and what he described in that earlier section, where he takes the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and he links it together with the life of our Lord in every single verse, in every single phrase, from verse 22 down to verse 25. Later today, if you would like to, a lovely, gorgeous exercise would be to take Isaiah uh, 53 and just lay it right up against your Bible and look at the way that all of the verses and the phrases correspond with one another. Sometimes he uh, quotes exactly from Isaiah 53. Sometimes it's an allusion to Isaiah 53. I'm not going to do that for us right now. Peter does take one liberty with Isaiah 53. Peter saw it. 
He didn't look at it from 700 years before it happened in the unclarity of the prophetic world. Instead, Peter saw the events. And so what Peter does when he arranges his material that continues on from verse 22 is he puts it in the order of the passion. It's the order in which it took place. The order of the life of Jesus Christ. And so here's what Peter is saying. This is his life. This is your example. Here's the letter. Get ready to trace it. Here's the first place to stick your foot if you're going to be following in his steps. Here's the first footprint. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. How's that as an example for you? Do what Jesus did. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Put your foot right there. Put your pen on the paper right there and start. Start writing right in this place. Stating it positively. In the face of injustice and unjust suffering, Jesus always did what was good. That's our example. Jesus abstained from the temptation to sin or even to stand up for his rights in this world, and he instead did good. This, then, is the call to us. Peter is saying, be like your Lord, be holy. Your Lord did good. You do good. Your Lord subjected himself to the will of his Father and always did what his Father said. That's holiness, you be holy. Next step, 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When he suffered the abuse, when he suffered the verbal tauntings, and then when he suffered the physical abuse for doing good, he did not retaliate. He subjected himself to injustice. It was wrong. There's never been anything that was so wrong. It was within his power to change the situation, and he didn't. He subjected himself to these religious authorities. He subjected himself to the state authorities of the day. And as he did so, he embraced the sovereign, eternal principle. He trusted God and entrusted himself to God for God's will. May your will be done was the motto that carried him all the way through the cross. May your will be done. And Isaiah 53 tells us it clearly. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. May your will be done. Unto you, Jesus said, I commit my spirit. I entrust myself to you. As a man, he committed himself. And the final disposition of justice to his father. 
That's the letter we are to trace. Those are the footprints in which we are to walk. Those are big shoes to fill. Those are big steps to take. Those are complicated letters to write. As you know, as Peter knew, as Isaiah knew, example alone isn't enough for us. In fact, if, if you think, if you're sitting here and you think example is all you need, if you think that marching orders are sufficient for you, that you'll be able to keep in step, then you have, you are making a colossal error in self-assessment. If you think that all Jesus needed to do was say, come and walk this way, and you're good, that's all you, that's all you need, great, tell me which way to go, and I'm there, I'm with you, I'm following. It's a colossal error of your self-judgment. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. And so Peter does something here that I just need to explain what he's doing. Peter is going to shift, pivot. He's going to shift from looking at the cross as something which is shared. It's shared in the sense, take up your cross daily and follow me. And now he's going to shift and look at the cross as a singularity. There's something shared about the cross and there's something unique about the cross. And now we're shifting to that which is unique, the once-for-allness of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Peter continues with Isaiah. He switches now to the first person in verse 24, because how could you not switch to the first person at this point? And he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was obedient. He was submissive. He was subject even to the point of death on a cross for us. For us. He was bearing our failure to follow our failure to be holy, our failure to entrust ourselves, our, our failure to abstain from the passions of the flesh, our failure to keep our conduct honorable, our failure to be subject ultimately to God himself and to the authorities whom God has placed in our lives, to whom we ought be in subjection. He was bearing our failure to endure. He was bearing our failure to do that which was good. He was bearing our inability to walk in his steps. That's what he's carrying. That's what he is carrying in his body on the tree. He is subjecting himself. The thing that is weighing him down is your sin. Your iniquity. He's bearing that in his body. He's being subject to the punishment that was owed by us. He's taking our subjection upon himself. And going to the cross. 
That is why Jesus says to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, who are walking after the resurrection and who can't understand these things, what has taken place. Jesus says to him, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? It was necessary, he says. This had to be. This was the way. This was what the scriptures said. It was necessary. And Jesus says, and I did it. I did it. I bore it for you. And so the cross... The sufferings forgive all of those failings, all of those sins, and the cross does something else. And don't miss this, because this is, this is part and parcel of what Peter is saying here. You could no more walk in the steps of Jesus than you could fly to the moon right now, easier than it used to be, nevertheless. The cross does more. The cross... It enables us to die to sin and live to righteousness. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The cross does that. The cross heals us. By his wounds, you have been healed. And the cross returns us to the flock. It brings us back into the fold. This atoning, this sin-bearing, this saving, unique work of Jesus enables us, broken though we may be, to rejoin, re-participate the mission of exemplifying him in our lives to the world, and suffering is an indispensable part of that witness that we are to bear to the world. The suffering of the cross, the power of the resurrection that animates, vivifies, quickens us unto a life of stepping in his steps as we go. Romans 6, 5 to 6, on the front of your bulletin. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You've been set free unto walking in those steps, tracing the letters of his life. You could not have done that without the atoning work of Jesus Christ, without the setting free work of Jesus Christ, the deliverance from bondage to sin. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not because of works, so that no one can boast. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance so that you can what? Walk in them. So that you can walk in those good works. You couldn't have done it before. Salvation was necessary. And all that salvation is, the forgiveness and the granting of a new life to us. It is the restoration of us to the fold. It is the healing that is given to us. It is the quickening, the bringing of us to life that now enables us to live unto these things. When we were dead, we could not have done that. And so these two things, the exemplifying work that Jesus has done on our behalf and the vicarious atoning sacrifice that he has done on our behalf, are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. 
And that's what he did for us. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are set free to follow in his steps. Peter preached it because if any man understood the necessity of the cross of Jesus Christ to forgive, to bear, to restore, and then to enable a person to follow after Jesus, if anybody understood that, Peter did. That guy understood it. He thought he could do it. He thought if anybody could do it, I could do it. You'll never suffer. I'll go with you all the way. I'll slay the wicked around you. And he couldn't follow. He couldn't follow. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. May we also, like Peter, understand it and live it. Great God in heaven, how can we be recipients of such a great grace? Help us to live in this, Lord. Help us not to trust in ourselves, not to trust in ourselves for forgiveness or for righteousness in any way, and not to trust in ourselves for the ability to walk after you, but instead to consider the cross of Christ and to consider the forgiveness that is granted to us and the freedom that has been purchased for us. Jesus, you are a great Savior. We thank you that you are shepherd and overseer of our souls. Amen.